1950 was the height of the Red Scare, a time when many Americans threw away the idea of rights and liberties, you know, the whole freedom thing, while searching for communists who somehow never really materialized. That summer, a booklet was published called Red Channels. It named over 150 writers, directors, and performers and cited their involvement in what the authors considered communistic activities, like signing a congratulatory letter to the Moscow Art Theater or heading a charity drive for Soviet war relief during World War II when the USSR was our ally. If you were named in red channels, you were guilty until proven innocent. At least you were as far as broadcast networks and advertising agencies were concerned. Red Channels was the foundation of a blacklist that affected most of the East Coast, which is where some radio shows and most television originated at the time. The victims of this blacklist were, in some cases, deprived of their livelihoods. Several of them never recovered from the economic blow, and at least one committed suicide. We looked at those stories in Part 1. Now in Part 2, we look at what happened when people pushed back against the blacklist, including one man who took the self-appointed Guardians Against Communism to court. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. My name's David Inman. The story of the blacklist that swept the movie industry in Hollywood and the broadcasting industry on the East Coast in the late 1940s and early 1950s is largely a story of cowardice on the part of film producers, advertising agencies, and radio and TV networks that were cowed by surprisingly small numbers of people protesting what they saw as communist influence in the shows and movies they watched. The protesters insisted on the ostracizing of writers, directors, and performers who were thought to be communists not because they would espouse propaganda on the air, but because some of their salaries might go to support what the protesters believed was an international communist conspiracy. The evidence upon which they based their beliefs was often exaggerated or just plain wrong, but in the heat of the moment, the truth was often a casualty. It was easier to fire someone or never hire them in the first place than it was to stand up to the livelihood lynch mob. But people did stand up, at least in a few instances. Gypsy Rose Lee had made a name for herself as a child star and then as an elegant strip tease artist in the 1940s, but she was also a novelist and a witty conversationalist. She was scheduled to be the host of a new radio show called What Makes You Tick when Red Channels hit the scene in the summer of 1950. Lee was cited in the book for speaking in a meeting of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, considered by some to be a communist front, nine years earlier, in 1941, and for being a celebrity auctioneer at an event 
benefiting the League of American Writers. Lee immediately issued a statement saying she had never been a member of the Communist Party, but when the American Legion gathered for a convention in Chicago, they voted to protest Lee's upcoming radio show. In response, ABC President Robert Kentner showed an unusual display of guts. He quoted Lee's denial to the Legion and then simply said, if you have any evidence to the contrary, please advise me. And the show went on with Lee. My name is Boris Karloff, and I've got a secret. I've got a secret. In 1952, the game show I've Got a Secret began a 15-year run on CBS. The host was comic Gary Moore, and the regular panelists included Bill Cullen, actress Faye Emerson, and acerbic comic Henry Morgan. The show was sponsored by the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. If you watch old clips on YouTube, you can see a giant pack of Winston or Cavalier cigarettes plastered on the desk where the panel sits. The William Estee Agency represented Reynolds, and someone from the agency called producer Mark Goodson to tell him that panelist Henry Morgan had appeared in red channels and he had to be dropped from the show. The agency acknowledged that the charges against Morgan weren't that serious, but they were terrified of a consumer backlash. Goodson went to the show's host, Gary Moore, a conservative Republican. He told Moore what was going on and said that if Moore would back him, he'd tell the agency that they would do the show without a sponsor. Moore agreed, and Goodson told the agency what their plan would be, and the agency backed down. Chad Huntley, NBC News, New York. And David Brinkley, NBC News, Washington. In the 1960s, Chet Huntley would be part of one of TV's most famous broadcasting teams. He and David Brinkley hosted the nightly newscast, The Huntley-Brinkley Report, on NBC. Off-camera, Huntley would have been considered more conservative than Brinkley, but even he came under attack by the vigilantes for his support of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. He also once criticized the god of the anti-communists, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy, who created his own kind of fake news by seeing communist infiltration in virtually every government agency, never mind that none of his claims ever bore fruit. This was before Huntley worked for NBC. He was doing a local show in Los Angeles, and he was sponsored by a coffee company. When a boycott was threatened, supporters rallied to Huntley's defense, and sales of the sponsor's coffee actually increased. The threats faded away. September 6, 1953 was a Sunday, and just as he had on Sunday nights for the last 20 years, Walter Winchell was presenting his weekly roundup of news and opinion on ABC. During World War II, Winchell had been a fierce anti-Nazi. Now he was a fierce anti-communist. And that night, he closed his show with a blind item. The top television comedian has been confronted with her membership in the Communist Party. 
At her ranch in Chatsworth, California, Lucille Ball, the star of America's most popular TV show, went into a panic. She had just appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee in a private session to review statements she had made before the committee the year before. It was true that in 1936, at age 24, Ball had signed a card indicating her intention to vote the Communist Party ticket in an upcoming election. She had done it to placate her socialist grandfather, who she called Daddy. It sounds a little weak and corny now, but at the time it was very important because we knew we weren't going to have Daddy with us very long. It made him happy. It was important at the time. In those days, it was not a terrible thing to do. It was almost as terrible to be a Republican in those days. Ball had appeared before the committee and signed an official statement explaining her story and disavowing the Communist Party. She was assured that she was in the clear. But someone had leaked news about her appearance to Walter Winchell, and after his blind item hit the air, Ball was attacked by the right-wing press. Her husband and co-star on I Love Lucy, Desi Arnaz, called FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The two men knew each other informally from encounters at the Del Mar racetrack. Hoover assured Arnez that his wife's FBI file was clean. Arnez then called CBS Brass to let them know what was going on. He also called Alfred Lyon, the president of the company that made Philip Morris cigarettes, the sponsor of I Love Lucy. Lyon stood by Ball, and the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee also said he was satisfied that Ball was clear of any wrongdoing. During the height of the hysteria, Ball looked outside one day to see comic Lou Costello of Abbott and Costello sitting in her garden. I'd known him a little bit, but I really didn't know him. I had done his radio show a couple of times. I went out there and said, Lou, what are you doing here? He said, you just go about your business. I'm just hanging out here for the day. I just thought you might need a friend about now. Even Walter Winchell, the anti-communist with the biggest megaphone, got back into the picture. On the following Sunday's broadcast, he announced that Ball had been cleared and added, Tonight, Mr. Lincoln is drying his eyes for making her go through this. I don't know what that means. There was still a small backlash, including from a group of World War II veterans in Indianapolis who swore off smoking Philip Morris cigarettes. But overall, sales of Philip Morris weren't affected and the ratings stayed the same. I Love Lucy was still the country's number one TV show. And in a pointed gesture, President Dwight D. Eisenhower invited Ball, Arnez, and co-stars Vivian Vance and William Frawley to the White House. Looking back, Ball would reflect on her comparative good fortune. I was one of the lucky ones. For a long time, people in Hollywood couldn't get a job because of unfounded and vicious smear rumors. If news of my registration had been revealed during the worst witch hunting days between 1945 and 1950, my career would probably have been finished. In late 1953, a new anti-communist group began. It was called Aware Incorporated, and one of the founders was Vincent Hartnett, a self-styled expert on communism who had written the introduction to Red Channels. The other founder was our old friend Lawrence Johnson, an anti-communist crusader who owned four supermarkets in Syracuse, New York. If you listened to our last episode, then you're familiar with Mr. Johnson. 
He was a little man with a lot of power, at least as far as ad agencies were concerned. Hartnett had built up his own files on performers' quote, communistic activities, unquote, much in the style of red channels, and aware would send bulletins, as they were called, to networks and ad agencies who would use them in the same way they used red channels to screen out any performer or director who might incite a boycott of a sponsor's product. Hartnett would also contact the performers himself, offering them the chance to clear themselves for a price, and he pressured companies into hiring him as a clearance officer to avoid further controversy on shows they sponsored. You're invited to check your news knowledge against a quartet of celebrities as Columbia presents It's News to Me. Our panel tonight, Quincy Howe, journalism professor at the University of Illinois. Anna Lee, star of stage, screen, and television. Gene Dalrymple, famous Broadway producer and concert manager. John Henry Falk, raconteur and humorist. And your host of It's News to Me, John Daly. John Henry Falk was a personality on CBS radio and a regular on TV game shows in the early 1950s. He was a native of South Austin, Texas, and on his daily radio show, he told stories with a down-home humor in the style of Mark Twain or Will Rogers. Falk's father had been a prominent attorney and judge with a dedication to social justice, and he himself was a liberal, make no mistake about that. Still, despite his beliefs, he had largely escaped the blacklist. But Falk opposed blacklisting, and he was concerned that the union he belonged to, the American Federation of Television and Radio Actors, or AFTRA, wasn't doing enough to protect its members from predatory groups like AWARE. So in the summer of 1955, Falk became part of a slate of candidates running for AFTRA office. It was known as the middle-of-the-road slate because it didn't support AWARE, as the incumbent slate did, but it also didn't support communism. Members of the middle-of-the-road slate believed that the union should do more to protect its members by standing up to the blacklist. The slate also included CBS newsman Charles Collingwood, comics Orson Bean, Ronnie Graham, and Gary Moore, and actresses Janice Rule and Faye Emerson. The slate ended up winning 27 out of 35 seats on the AFTRA governing board. They took office in January 1956, and on February 12th, Falk got a call from a columnist at the New York Times informing him that he and AFTRA were the subjects of the latest bulletin from AWARE. The bulletin listed seven occasions when Falk appeared at nightclubs or as a part of shows associated with communists. In 1948, Falk had supported progressive candidate Henry Wallace for president, who was also endorsed by the Communist Party. And he was a U.S. sponsor of the American Continental Congress for Peace, staged in Mexico City in 1949. Again, Falk had never been targeted before his election to after leadership, and he sensed a definite connection. He surmised that Hartnett and Johnson were out to destroy the new slate because it might threaten their power to bully advertisers, 
and Falk was a handy target. Hartnett had a where to do his dirty work, and Johnson had a three-pronged method of attack. One was the power of his supermarkets in Syracuse, New York. Second was his control of the American Legion post in Syracuse. And third was control of a group called the Veterans Action Committee of Syracuse, which was headed by the chief buyer of fruit and vegetables for Lawrence Johnson's supermarkets. All three organizations had office stationary with impressive red, white, and blue letterheads, the better to intimidate sponsors. Falk was nervous, but he received assurance from his bosses at CBS that his job was secure. And at their suggestion, Falk wrote an affidavit answering all of Aware's charges. He also began considering the idea of suing Aware, Hartnett, and Johnson for libel. And he obtained the representation of one of the best-known attorneys in the country, Louis Neiser. Meanwhile, Lawrence Johnson had come to Madison Avenue and was personally calling on ad agencies. Falk kept losing sponsors because of that, and because he was drawing attention to himself by insisting on filing a lawsuit, Falk was fired by CBS in the summer of 1957. But John Henry Falk, for obvious reasons, can tell this story much better than I can. Here he is with Bill Moyers in the 1980s. What's that story you tell about uh, when you were 12 years old, your mother sent you out to the hen house to look for the chicken snake that was harassing ah, the hen? That's, that's, well, I use that usually to illustrate something. Boots Cooper and I were law and order men. We, I was a Texas Ranger, and he was a, he was a United States Marshal. When you were playing as kids. We were both 12 years old, and we rode the frontier between Mama's back door and her hen house and the cowborn out there. We lived out in South Austin, Texas. And uh, Mama told us there was a chicken snake in one of the hen's nests out there, would we mighty lawmen go out and execute it? We both of us barefooted in overalls, and we laid aside our stick horses, got a hole, and went in, and the hens were in a state of acute agitation, and they had a crane in their necks, and we had to stand on tiptoe to look in the top tier of nests, and about the third top nest we looked in, a chicken snake looked out of. And I don't know, Bill, whether you've ever viewed a chicken snake from the distance of six inches from the end of your nose. Not that close. But it, I, I've it, kept a The snake. damn things look like a boa constrictor from that distance, although it's about the size of your finger. And uh, Boots and I, uh, all of our frontier courage drained out our uh, heels. Actually, it trickled down our overall legs. <laughs> and, and Boots and I made a new door through the hen house wall. <laughs> And Mama came out and said, well, you've lulled me into a sense of false security. I thought I was safe from all hurt and harm, and here you've let a chicken snake run you out of the hen house, and a little chicken snake at that. Don't you know chicken snakes are harmless? They can't hurt you. Boot said, yes, sir, Miss Falk, I know that. And he rubbing his forehead and his behind at the same time. said, but they can scare you so bad, it will cause you to hurt yourself. <laughs> and that's what happened. This is what happened to us during that period, Bill. We became so frightened of the... At our own freedoms. Yeah. Falk's lawsuit was financed by a $7,500 personal payment from legendary CBS newsman Edward R. Murrow. Let's get this straight, Johnny, Murrow told Falk. I am not making a personal loan to you of this money. I am investing this money in America. These people must be brought into court. This is a very important suit. I don't know whether even you realize how important it is. The lawsuit of Falk versus Aware 
Lawrence Johnson and Vincent Hartnett was filed with the New York State Supreme Court on June 26, 1956. It wouldn't come to trial for another six years after a long period of grinding poverty for Falk. He returned to his native Austin to start an advertising agency, but even that was slow going. Then in March 1958, Falk got a lifeline from an old friend, Jack Parr, the host of The Tonight Show. Falk went on, prepared to tell a story or two, but he froze. Parr sensed his panic and quickly brought on another guest. Offers later came in from radio stations in Minneapolis and San Francisco, but for some reason they would mysteriously dry up. After years of depositions and extensive research, Neiser and his team were ready for trial, and Falk would be asking for $1 million in damages. Then, just a few days before the trial was set to begin, Neiser got a panicked call from a very high-profile client, Elizabeth Taylor. She was filming Cleopatra in Italy and had decided to divorce her husband, Eddie Fisher. Neiser needed to get there at once. Falk panicked, but Neiser assured him he wouldn't be going to Rome. The trial began on April 16, 1962. Falk would later write of that day, my God, this is America. Here I sit, a one-time cow-milking South Austin boy who came to New York, felt an injustice had been done to him, and demanded satisfaction. The American people have done the rest, provided all this. A courtroom, a jury, a judge, court attendance, the free press to report the proceedings, and the opportunity to present my complaint and have its merits argued fully. The thought awed me. Everybody in that courtroom, everybody, was there because I, a citizen, felt I had been unjustly treated. I knew that whatever the outcome of the trial, the meaning and the impact of this greater truth would never escape me again. The chief counsel for the defense was Roy Cohn. You might recognize his name. He was the chief counsel for Senator Joseph McCarthy during his communist witch hunt. He died of AIDS in 1986. A fictionalized version of Cohn was the central figure in Tony Kushner's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Angels in America. And in the final years of his life, Cohn was a close friend and confidant of Donald Trump. In this case, Cohn played only a small role, handing over the bulk of the work to his associates. The defense counsel tried its best to position Falk as a simple disc jockey who was fired because his ratings were slipping and who was suing out of sour grapes. Neiser's goal was to prove conclusively that not only had Falk suffered because of the blacklist, but that Hartnett and Johnson were actively conspiring to ruin the livelihoods of the people they opposed. As witnesses for Falk, Neiser called producer David Suskind, actress Kim Hunter, and actor Tony Randall. But the strongest witness for the plaintiff wasn't a celebrity or a performer. He was Tom Murray, who worked for the Gray Advertising Agency. Murray was the chief executive on the Coca-Cola account and told the jury that Falk's ads for Coke on his radio show resulted in increased sales and favorable listener comment. Then in March 1956, Murray got a letter from Lawrence Johnson, followed by a phone call. Johnson threatened Murray with a letter from the Syracuse American Legion. 
Murray responded that as a veteran and a Legion member himself, he couldn't believe that the American Legion would lend itself to such an obvious blackmail attempt. He added, Mr. Johnson had not qualified himself as an authority on such subjects. I thought he should be back wherever he comes from selling baked beans, to tell you the truth. By what right does a grocer call me up and tell me so-and-so is a communist? Get rid of him. I don't mind admitting I was kind of sore. Game show producer Mark Goodson also testified on behalf of Falk, speaking of his own first-hand experience with blacklisting and the people who cleared, quote-unquote, controversial personalities. Goodson also talked about how Lawrence Johnson had harassed him about using actress Judy Holliday on one game show and comic writer A. Burroughs on another. Goodson added, All I can say is there were no differentiations made between communists, communist sympathizers, those who had lunch with communist sympathizers, those who knew somebody who had lunch with communist sympathizers, and so forth. But there was one overall list, and the differentiation was not made for us. Sponsors and their agencies want to keep out of trouble with the public, and therefore wanted to eliminate anybody that might be accused of anything which could involve the sponsor in controversy. But all those lists could easily include someone who had nothing to do with it. One of Falk's final witnesses was one of the fellow members of the AFTRA middle-of-the-road slate, Gary Moore. Moore was at the peak of his popularity. He hosted the popular game show I've Got a Secret every week, and he was also the host of a popular CBS variety series that's probably best known as the place where Carol Burnett got her start. The night before he'd appeared in court, Moore had won an Emmy Award for his work on that series. Moore attested to Falk's principles and patriotism and praised his talent. He also told of his own blacklist experience, that he had been told not to book a particular act on his variety show, only to learn that the performer had the same name as the one on the blacklist, but wasn't the same man. Moore added that he ran for the after office because I was terribly frightened by what was happening to people being blacklisted. It was a little bit like fighting with six men in a closet with the light out, and you can't tell who's hitting you. Then it was the defense's turn to call witnesses. The counsel knew better than to call the volatile Lawrence Johnson, but they called Vincent Hartnett, the publisher of Aware. Falk's attorney, Neiser, began his cross-examination by accusing Hartnett of writing unsolicited letters to Falk's sponsors complaining about his supposed communist affiliations. Hartnett denied that he did that, and then Neiser produced copies of the letters. Neiser then attacked Hartnett's methods and standards used in listing people in aware. Falk was watching Hartnett testify, and he noticed that every so often, Hartnett would take out a card and write something on it. Neiser asked him about it, and Hartnett, on the stand, admitted he was writing down names of actors and actresses who were attending the trial and who might be Falk sympathizers. That brought a gasp from the jury. Neiser was happy just to make the point that Hartnett was taking down names, but the defense attorney brought it up again during questioning and it backfired spectacularly. Hartnett announced the names he had written down and then added that one of them had sat next to John Henry Falk's wife. Neiser asked Hartnett to point out that woman. He did, and it wasn't Falk's wife. Neiser attacked. 
Sir, is that an example of the accuracy with which you have identified your victims for the past 10 years? Summations from each side began on June 26th, roughly 10 weeks after the trial began. In his clothes, Neiser assailed Vincent Hartnett, referring to him as the man with the thin mouth and the blue suit. You know, he said, this would be funny, except for the fact that every artist in America was frightened to death. You either knuckled under to the Hartnets and the Johnsons, or you were out of work. And very few people wanted to do what Falk did, and not have food to eat in order to bring this case to trial. Let the word go out that this kind of thing must stop. Give, by your verdict, a clear answer to the kind of un-Americanism which this case represents. The judge in the case declared a short recess, and a reporter who was a friend of Falk's walked up to him. She had news. Lawrence Johnson, pride of Syracuse, owner of four supermarkets, self-righteous bully, abuser of the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights, had just been found dead in a motel in the Bronx. The judge immediately ordered the jury to be sequestered for the night so they would not hear the news. Then he asked both sides to prepare a memoranda to be presented the next day on how they thought the matter should be handled. Court began again, and Neiser continued his summation as if nothing had changed. Finally, he came to his closing, saying to the jury, I leave to your hands the doing of full justice. And if you do that, ladies and gentlemen, you can sleep well, because God will be awake. Thank you. The next day, the jury was informed of Johnson's death and also told that Johnson's estate was still party to the lawsuit. The jury retired to discuss the case, and four hours later, they came back in because there was a question. The foreman asked the judge, Can the jury award more damages than the plaintiff asked for? Falkneiser and the judge were flabbergasted. The judge told them yes, and the jury retired again for a few hours. Falk had asked for a million dollars in damages. To that point, the largest libel verdict had been half a million. The jurors returned. They awarded Falk compensatory damages of one million dollars against Aware, Hartnett, and Johnson. Then they awarded Falk punitive damages of $1.25 million against Aware and the same amount against Hartnett. In all, it was a verdict of $3.5 million. A few months later, the amount of Lawrence Johnson's estate was announced, less than a quarter million dollars. Hartnett and Aware filed an appeal of the verdict, and though the verdict was upheld by two different courts, the amount of the award was eventually reduced to $550,000. John Henry Falk went back to work, though his star had dimmed somewhat. He did some game shows, and he played small roles in a few movies. He was the storyteller in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Falk wrote a book, Fear on Trial, about the libel case. It was made into a TV movie in 1975 with George C. Scott as Louis Neiser and William Devane as Falk. He wrote a few more books after that, and from roughly the mid-1970s to the early 1980s, he was a regular on Hee Haw, telling the kind of stories he had once told on his radio show. John Henry Falk died of cancer in 1990. Here's how he ends Fear on Trial. 
To me, the most sinister aspect of that whole period was the systematic way respectable educators, ministers, artists, writers, librarians, Americans from every walk of life, were hauled in by some committee or publicly denounced by some vigilante group and pronounced guilty. Citizens came to accept the dictum that a concern about injustices was a greater crime than the injustices themselves, and we all kept quiet. Silence became our greatest virtue. What a paradox. Silence was precisely what exposed us to the worst ravings of vigilantes. The habit of keeping quiet is still in use. Blacklisting still goes on. It would be gratifying indeed to think that if my lawsuits serve no other purpose, it demonstrated that one does not have to keep quiet when the vigilantes come riding. Sorry now, whose heart is aching for breaking its vow? Who's sad and blue? Who's crying too? Just like I cried over you. Right to the end, just like a friend, I try to warn you somehow. Had your way, now you must pay, and I'm glad that you're sorry now. My name's David Inman. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my daughter Nora for impersonating Lucille Ball. See you later. So glad that you're sorry now